The following Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, November 8th, 2021. The woman in your life everybody and welcome to Women's Spaces. My name is Elaine B. Holtz and I'm your host. And with me at the board is my friend, my partner, my engineer and co-producer Ken Norton. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Oh, what a beautiful day it is here in Sonoma County. Well, I have a very special guest with me this morning. Joining me on the phone will be Janine Murray, Executive Director of Sonoma County Go Local. She will be joining me on the phone, and, you know, most people are working from home, and Janine is the Executive Director of Sonoma County Local, and that's what we'll be talking about, the benefits of supporting local businesses during these holiday seasons. I can hardly believe that Thanksgiving Giving is just around the corner. And I have a second guest with me, which I'm really extremely excited about. Joining me on the phone this morning will be Charlie Toledo, the Executive Director of the Susco Intertribal Council, and we'll be talking about the her organization. And a reminder to folks, November is Native American Heritage Week, and we'll be talking about that and some of the issues facing our Native American culture. Well, just a little background, a Native American Heritage Month uh, on October 3rd, 1990, the President of the United States, who was George H. Bush at the time, declared the month of November as National American Indian Heritage Month, therefore commonly referred to as Native American Heritage Month. The bill read in part that the President has authorized and requested to call upon federal, state, and local governments, groups, and organizations, and the people of the United States to observe each month with appropriate programs, ceremonies, and activities. This landmark bill honoring American tribal people represented a major step in the establishment of this uh, uh, this uh, celebration. So I'm really excited about talking about that. It's just amazing. Well, if my voice sounds excited and up this morning, well, you better believe it. I have become a great grandmother for the second time I'm just amazed I got this wonderful wonderful picture uh, of the new baby uh, Kaya Sierra Jensen uh, she was born uh, yesterday on uh, November 7th she came in at uh, 6 pounds 14 ounces and 19.5 inches oh my goodness and just a beautiful baby and I got the first picture of my new great granddaughter sitting next to my other great-granddaughter, Satori uh, Trinity Jensen, who is now a big sister. So if you're listening, Satori, congratulations. I know you're going to be one of the best big sisters in the whole whole world. And I'm, I'm really excited because my granddaughter, Caitlin Jensen, is here visiting and taking care of Satori. And I know my daughter, Susan, who's becoming a grandmother for the second time. I'll tell you something. There's nothing more joyous than watching your own child become first a mother and then 
and a grandmother and just amazing. And a shout out to my beautiful, beautiful granddaughter, Amber Jensen, and my beautiful grandson, Ryan Jensen. Congratulations. I know they were at the, I, I, I can't remember the hospital they were at or the birthing room, but it's just amazing. And, you know, we had a shower for uh, Amber for the new baby, and we're wearing these little uh, red uh things though strings around our our wrist to assure that the baby is born healthy and I'm just so happy to see such a beautiful, beautiful, healthy baby and that it was a pretty simple birth, you know, not many complications, which is absolutely wonderful. I mean that's what we all pray for. And what it does for me I say this over and over and over again. Our children are the future, and we must never lose sight of that. I mean, we have young people that have just done a – I'm just reading in the Press Democrat an article by Carrie Benefield, 14 days these young people – fasted and we're, we're on a hunger strike in Washington, D.C., trying to get the adults in the room to start looking at climate change. I mean, when I think of this new baby coming into the world, what it does for me, it gives me a more incentive, more energy to speak out for the children, for the children, our children, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, but also the children of the world. Each child is a miracle. I mean, watching, watching these two great grandchildren develop, you know, just growing my, my granddaughter's stomach, just watching it evolve. And then here we have this beautiful bundle of joy that comes into our lives. We have to make sure every child has medical. Every child has a good home to return to. Every child has good, healthy food. I mean, I can't believe that they're have, they're suing some, uh, one of the, um, uh, children's uh, food that are uh, given to uh, premature babies in the hospital, causing them upset stomachs and certain uh, generic uh, problems that they're having. And you know, we have to start thinking about our children. What what are we? What food are we putting in them in their bodies? I mean, how are we raising them? What attitudes are we giving them? What are they watching on television? I mean, this crazy violent stuff that's going on. I mean, I, I hate to rant, but you know how it is. You know, you start thinking about it and you start looking at it and you're looking at these young people in Washington, D.C., uh, fasting, excuse me, uh, on a hunger strike to get the adults in the room to start paying attention to uh, climate change. And also when you see some of these representatives who are representing coal companies and some of the environmental issues that we're trying to fight and trying to cure, and they're holding on with all their might, you know, and you think here's another baby that's born into this world, and what kind of world is it going to be? I mean, come on, we need to be a a nation of life, not a nation of death. Well, once again, just to let my listeners, I'm just thrilled at the idea that I'm a great-grandmother for the second time. And Ken, he's a great-grandpa. How do you feel about that, Ken? I'm getting very happy at the moment. I know. It's just really exciting. I mean, it's an, an exciting thing. And birth, you know, birth is such a miracle. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when you think about, you know, here comes this egg and this and this sperm together, and then all of a sudden this beautiful child starts developing it's, it's just amazing. Just amazing. 
Well, you know, what I'm, you know, I do every Monday morning, we do our history is our strength. And like I announced last week, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm trying, I'm, I'm going, I thought I would do something different. Instead of the history of an individual woman, I thought it would be a good idea to remind us how far we've come and some of the changes that were made, giving women more independence and a voice. So therefore, for the month of November, that's what I'm going to be doing. And I found a, I found a, a, a website that gave me 40 different things that women did not have a right to prior to 1970. And here's one of them. It's so interesting to me. It is really interesting to me that women at one time would run the Boston Marathon. This is so interesting. The first woman to try to run the Boston there, uh, Marathon was Catherine Switzer, a student at Syracuse uh, University in 1967. At the time, the Boston Marathon did not acknowledge women. And while Switzer registered and ran and made history, she was attacked, spit on, and taunted. Can you believe that? In fact, she would not it would not be until five years later in 1972 when women did not receive an acknowledgement as runners in the Boston Marathon. Nina Kasek from Huntington, New York, was one of the first women to be acknowledged coming first for women at three hours, 10 minutes, and 26 seconds in 1972. So it was almost like women could run in the marathon, but it was like they were non-existent. And these two women came to the plate, and here we go. In 1972, women finally got acknowledged. Amazing. Another thing, too, that was really interesting, uh, in uh, there was no... Up until 1970, there was no way to force uh, equality for women on the workforce, even though the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Act stated employment places could not discriminate based on gender or race. Females continue to uh, be discriminated against. Well into the 1970s, no matter what act Congress passed, women continued to face discrimination. Therefore, the National Organization for Women started to focus their attention on the issues that women faced in the workplace. This organization worked to make sure employment agencies enforced the new acts. Unfortunately, discrimination is still a struggle in the workplace, and women are still underpaid. But at least after 1970, there was some acknowledgement that there was some a problem. And then, very, very interesting, too, it wasn't until 1977 that women could also actually protect themselves against sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, when you think here in the, in the 2000 and, you know, started about, what was it about, 2010 or 15, where all of a sudden you had all of a sudden women, it was the Me Too uh, movement that happened, where all of a sudden women were starting to come forward and what some of the issues that they were dealing with around sexual harassment. Prior to that, you couldn't say a peep. I remember a while back when I was working, this was so interesting. I was an insurance underwriter. I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but with the owner of the company that I worked for, we went to a rather large insurance agency to negotiate for us to underwrite for them. And I was sitting in the CEO's office, and he was just gawking at me. I was only in my 20s, my early 20s, and it was even before I even had my baby. So, I mean, I was pretty fit and pretty pretty at the time. And he was just staring at me. 
And I looked at him and finally asked him, I said, is there something wrong? And he just looked at me and said, oh, you just have the most beautiful legs. And I was so mortified. You know, I didn't know what to say for a second. And then all of a sudden I looked at him. I said, oh, is that going to get us the contract? And my boss almost fell off the floor. But I remember how comfortable I felt. And I really had no, I, I, there was nothing I could do about it. You know, there was really absolutely nothing I could do about it. I just had to sit there and just take whatever he put out there, not say anything, because I wanted to make sure that I still maintained my job at that time. So we've come a long way, baby. We really have. But at the same time, when you're looking at what's going on with the right to choose, you know, like I say over and over, I'm not for abortion. I'm not against abortion. I mean, look at here, my second great-grandchild. I mean, I love children. I love babies. They're beautiful. But I do not support that women do not have a choice. Women need a choice over their own bodies. And, you know, once they start taking these choices, once they start chipping away, you know, once they start chipping away, before you know, you lose all your freedoms. You know, I was talking, I remember I was talking to some of the young women downtown in Santa Rosa. You know, they, they have little groups. They all dressed in black and they all have all, lots and lots of tattoos on their bodies. And I say, you know, I support what's happening. I support that this is who you are. This is who you choose to be. This is how you choose to dress and remind them that when I went to school one day in a black turtleneck and black pedal pushers and gold earrings and red lipstick, I was suspended for a week because I wasn't following the dress code. Now women can dress as they please. They can tattoo their bodies as they please. You know, we start chipping away our rights. One day they're going to say, no, this is not the American woman that we want that has a tattoo on her body or wears black. So we really have to be careful. We do not want to lose what we have gained. And there's a lot on the table right now, particularly with our right to choose. Very, very important. Well, there's a lot to think about, but that's what Women's Spaces is all about. we got to start thinking about these things, you know, really just thinking about these things. Well, I'm going to play a special song. It's called Wake Up, Everybody, and it's sung by a woman by the name of Thelma Houston. And I want to dedicate this song to a dear friend of mine, uh, Reverend Randolph uh, Randy Hurley, who recommended this song. And Randy is a Native American, and so as as you know, it's, it's Native American Heritage Month, Randy, and we're celebrating it. And I also wanted to acknowledge that you recommended this song. So I want to dedicate this to you, and I want to thank you very much. Uh, he's in a rehab center right now in healing, and I wish him a, a speedy, speedy recovery. And one of the things that I love about uh, Reverend Hurley is he's always got an idea and he listens to the show and never is shy about complimenting me. So I want to thank him from the bottom of my heart. So let's go ahead, Ken, let's go ahead and re, uh, uh, play the song Wake Up Everybody, sung by Thelma Houston. And when we return, I will be talking with Janine Murray, the executive director of the Son- Sonoma County Local, and we'll be talking about the holiday seasons and how we can support local business here in Northern California.
want you to listen to me for a little bit right here. I wonder, did you read the newspapers this morning? Or did you see the evening news as you were having dinner with your families last night? Well, if you did, then you must know that this world is in a whole lot of trouble. But I don't want you to get discouraged by that, no. Because I believe that there's a solution to all of this. Deep down within my soul. All we have to do is put our heads and our hearts together. You gotta wake up everybody. And no more sleeping in bed. And no more backward thinking. It's time for thinking ahead. The world's changed so very much from what it used to be. There is so much hatred, war and poverty. To wake up, wake up. I want you to sing along with me. Change, 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 changes in the air. Well, for you just joining us, I want to remind you, my listeners, the opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of the station, the board of directors, its members, or women's spaces. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine B. Holtz. And without further ado, I want to introduce my guest. Joining me on the phone is one of my favorite people, Janine Murray, the executive director of Sonoma County Go Local. Welcome, Janine. Welcome to Women's Spaces. Thank you, Elaine. I'm so glad to join you on this wonderful show. I don't know if you heard the beginning of it, but my great-granddaughter, uh, Kaya Sierra, was born yesterday. And so I'm, oh. I'm a great-grandmother for the second time, Janine. 
Kaya, what a beautiful name. I know, and, and such a beautiful baby. Oh, oh, Sonoma County, bless you for having oh. such good facilities to have children born. Well, listen, Janine, before we start, can I just tell our folks just a little bit about you? You bet. Uh, Janine Murray uh, directs Go Local Sonoma County with a 13 a year strong economic development marketing organization for locally owned independent uh, businesses. She is the executive director and is a manager of sustaining technologies, go local media arm. Janine is the publisher of made local magazine and a wonderful magazine, a, a free community magazine about our local food system and entrepreneurial economy. Janine is a volunteer member of the Sonoma County food system Alliance. And in her spare time, <laughs> plays accordion of all things with the uh, hub club and in and uh, the street band in parades and marches throughout the county. I'm sure that you were at the uh, at the couch event. <laughs> yes, the winter blast. So How was that? I, we we missed it because we were in the middle of having a new baby born. <laughs> oh yes, of course. That's more important. It was so much fun. It's a great event in this um, South of A district of, of Santa Rosa, just below Juilliard Park. And it was so joyful this year. It didn't happen last year. And it's an outdoor event. The parade is all, you know, it's all outdoors. And it's a family-friendly uh, kind of evening parade. And so there's just such wonderful lights. And it's very creative and playful because people uh, decorate a sofa. Some people do. And they put it on wheels and they roll it down the street. And it's just so... It, it, just having an all-ages event outdoors in the evening is so special. And then the, actually a, a transformer blew, so the power went out for a while. And we, our band, we just kept playing. <laughs> and we didn't care if there was a lights or not. We just kept on playing, and it was so much fun. Well, I want to do a special shout-out to Shin, uh, Janina Black, Jakina Black from the Peace yeah. and Justice Center because she worked so hard. So thank you for filling us in oh, on about that. We'll talk a little bit about Go Local, you know, what some of its goals are and what are some of the re- the local resources that you have for the small business owner? Yes. Well, Go Local, as you said, is kind of a marketing uh, marketing network to help promote local uh, our local economy. And um, the reason that it's that it's important to have an organization that supports this is that it's all too easy to just do what's the easiest thing to do, which might be to click a button online and to order something from a global corporation, and it comes to your house the next day, or to um, you know, or, or or to to find the you know the basically the most convenient and maybe least exp- expensive option, and sometimes we don't have much of a choice. But but in this day and age, small businesses don't have the resources that the big global competitors have. So we we work together to help to help support them and promote them. So and local nonprofits just to help remind people of the profound impact, positive positive. Uh, benefits of supporting local businesses and nonprofits has in our community. Well, talk a little bit. Talk a little bit about the benefits. I mean, right now we're coming into the holiday season, and and what what is the benefit? I mean, why should I? You know, like you said, I can call up on the internet and they can have it the next day. I mean, what is the what is the difference? What how does the money roll? And and what's the difference when you're dealing with local? There there are a number of them, and so first I would say is that um, 
communities are stronger. Communities that have a larger share of local businesses actually have a stronger, uh, usually are stronger economically, which means they're more, um, um, there's more resources for the schools, the cities, the nonprofits, and all that. And they usually have a stronger web of, of like social relationships, higher levels of, of engagement, even civic engagement. So when there's more small businesses in a community, that community is stronger. Another reason is that communities that have a larger share of local businesses tend to be more diverse, diverse culturally and socioeconomically. And you know that um, that that kind of ties to less inequality in a in a community. And then uh, locally owned businesses create more jobs than than the big large businesses. If you think about, um, say, Amazon, for example, we can spend a whole lot with them, but are there any jobs created in Sonoma County for that? No. Whereas when we you know, actually, Oliver's Market did a study once that I think for every two jobs at Oliver's Market, an additional job is created in the community because of the all the local products that they, you know, sell, and it helps these smaller smaller businesses to grow. Well, it's interesting, too, because in our yeah. community, we have two, actually, we have two companies that are actually employee-owned, which is Oliver's uh, Supermarket and also um, Alvarado Bakery. And these are yes. two, these are two actually are locally owned by employees. So they're not yes. only, we're not only bringing in revenues and creating jobs, but also giving employees an opportunity to participate in their own companies, yep. which is amazing. It's true. It's true. And then um, we think about the environmental benefit is that communities that have more local businesses, they actually have a smaller environmental footprint, which means there's more that's if we source more, if there's things that we buy that are being created locally, there's less, there's less, uh, um, you know, things that have to get imported and travel halfway across the world. Of course, we, we live in a global economy. We can't avoid some of that. But the more that we can, you know, kind of source locally, it's actually better for the environment. And then finally, the biggest impact is basically the economic impact. And that is when we buy local goods from locally owned stores, our dollars don't just shoot up into the air like a helium balloon. They actually just imagine those dollars almost like a seed or a plant. You're planting seeds, and then those dollars recirculate and grow um, just to to help support other businesses and nonprofits and such. So it's it's sort of like replanting. Um, for further growth, and that's what happens economically. Well, you know, I want to ask you a question because you're very interested in, in local food systems. And I noticed yes. in a lot of the supermarkets right now, they have signs. They say, okay, organic sections, which is amazing. I mean, you can get so much organic food mm-hmm. now. It's just it's such a blessing. But then yeah. they also have a sign that says this was grown locally. So there's uh, also another way to, is there, would you see, uh, really believe in this is that there's another way to also support our local people by in, in the corporate area where they have the uh, local growers. Is that also important? Absolutely. So um, now I have a fact and I'm not going to throw around too many statistics, but this one is pretty in amazing and, and humbling. And that is that in Sonoma County, we import 96% of our fruits and vegetables. Wow. 
Yes. So we only produce 4%. We only eat, four, you know, grow 4% of the fruits and vegetables that we eat here in Sonoma County. And so we, and we think of Sonoma County as such an agricultural area, but really it's not very easy for economically for vegetable and fruit farmers besides wine, of course, wine grapes. Um, to grow. And so I would love to see, and one way that we can help support farmers and actually eat food that's grown locally, which is better for us anyway, is to find those local products, so those local um, fruits and vegetables. And sometimes they do cost more. I understand that because we actually, local farmers will try to pay their employees fair wages. Whereas when we get really cheap apples or, you know, lettuce from um, a non-local grocery store, it might, it might be cheap because it was imported from Mexico and they didn't pay a living wage to their farmers. So it's tough because we can't, it's not an easy problem to solve, but your question was spot on, which is it does have such a positive impact whenever we can, um, uh, buy locally grown products and locally uh, produced products, the the value added, the the sauces and the jams and the and the meats and the you know um, sauces that are made here in Sonoma County as well. It's amazing when you start thinking about it, and we have to start thinking about these things. And another thing that I'm beginning to recognize with when you're in, dealing with local local vendors, say for example, that they have a little mm-hmm. bit more on the shelf today because a lot of the shelves are a little bit empty. It's it's hard. It's getting harder and harder to get supplies. So I think yeah. that's very important. Well, we're coming to the end of our segment. Time just runs away with us, as I you know, know. Janine. You know, how can people participate and go local? How can they? Be, who who's, who are members? How can people become members? And how can yeah. the public participate? And one of, one of the things that I noticed and that is has had an impact because I know Ken and I were really involved at the beginnings of the Go Local process. But one of the things that I'm noticing today more than ever is there signs all over local grower, Good. local this, local that, which is yeah. which I think is the impact that Go Local has had. Good. I'm so glad. Yes, Go Local, we're a public organization, and we, we really try to remind everybody to support local. But the way our, our organization is run is by, by businesses and nonprofits and government agencies um, being members, and they pay just an annual membership fee to be a member, and then they can you know also participate in some of the media like our our, our magazines and we, we help we help them reach reach their customers local customers and you also so have that's, a, that's, you, you also have a guide that 's out that tells people yes. where where can folks get the guide and where can folks yes. get the magazine and, and by the way, the, thank you for mm-hmm. supporting for supporting our community radio station also oh you bet i'm that's that 's what drives our community and so people can then um, find uh, there's a new issue of Made Local Magazine that's actually getting delivered to the office here today. So it'll be in racks in the next couple days, our holiday, November, December issue of the magazine. You can find that at local grocery stores. In free, It's free in racks outside local grocery stores throughout Sonoma County. And same thing with our pocket guide. Now, the pocket guide, our new uh, issue is going to come out right around December 1st, so just in about three weeks or so. But there still may be some some of our summer summer fall issue out there as well in the racks outside local grocers and some other retailers like Friedman's and Western Farm and such. 
but um, that's one great way. Another um, way that you can uh, that that anyone can support Go Local is to find local businesses and we make it avail easy to find on our website golocal.coop c-o-o-p so it's golocal.coop and you can search for businesses you can type in shoes or you can type in you know whatever massage and you'll find a list of local businesses you can also and, you should also type in elaine b holtz or ken norton yes. and you can find us too so <laughs> you will find a lot of things you're going to find you're going to find norton and holtz business solutions you're going to find kbbf and you're going to find Women's Spaces Radio Show, and you're going to find Sonoma County National Organization of Women. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, go local. Yay. <laughs> it's true. You're a founding member. We do our best to support uh, your good work in all the ways that we can. Well, you know, it's it's very, very interesting, Janine. You've really taken it up to another level. I mean, you've, you've done a spectacular job. And I want to remind our listeners, you know, prior to 1970, we could not put an executive director next to Janine's name, or she could go out and play the accordion in her hubbub. I mean, times have changed, <laughs> and that's what we're trying to hold on to. Well, we've come to the end of our segment. How about any last words, and let's have the website one more time. Don't forget that every single one of us can vote with our dollars, no matter how many or how many or how few they are. Every time we make a decision and pull out our wallets, we are we can have a positive impact on our community. And you can visit Go Local to learn more at golocal.coop. Well, Janine Murray, Executive Director of Go Local, thank you so much for being on Women's Faces and for supporting us in all the ways that you do. And wishing you a joyous holiday season and all you local businesses out there, please, folks, make sure you go look at the guide, find a guide, and make sure you search out our local people and just at least explore, at least start looking at different mm-hmm. shops. It's very important. So thank you so much, Janine Murray. Thank you, Elaine, and, ha- and ha- uh, congratulations on being a double, double great-grandma. <laughs> I know. It's so exciting, Janine. It's amazing. You take care, my love. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Janine Murray, for being such a great guest and for giving us insight into the importance of supporting our local businesses. I might add, it is also important, like I said, to support your local community radio stations. Community radio at its best, and we have several here in Sonoma County. Well, we're going to take another musical break, and the song I'm going to be playing is We Are Here by Sharon by Sharon Birch. Sharon Birch was born uh, to a Navajo mother and a German father. She was raised in the traditional Navajo culture in New Mexico and spoke only Navajo language until she began school and she is a a founding advisor in the First uh, Nations Composer Initiative. You know, she's really a very, very strong person in the Native American community. So let's go ahead and listen to We Are Here by Sharon Birch and when we return we'll be talking to Charlie Polito, the Executive Director of the Susco Intertribal Council. Go ahead, Ken, let's play that. Mother Earth says, now take good care of me. Please do not hurt me. Hey, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh. And Father Sky says, now. 
Sharon Birch, and that was her native language, Navajo, and just amazing that she did not speak anything but Navajo until she went to school. So look her up on the internet that Sharon Birch, she has some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful songs. Well, welcome, Black. You're listening to Women's Spaces, and I'm your host, Elaine Beholtz, and without further ado, I want to introduce my guest. Joining me on the phone is Charlie Toledo, Executive Director for the Cisco Intertribal Council. Welcome, Charlie. Welcome Hi. to Women's Space. Hi, Elaine. Thank you for having me today. Oh, I am just so excited. I mean, I'm so glad, and thank you so much for, for your time and for all the all the wonderful things that you do on behalf of, of the Native Americans in our county and also just in general. So is it okay if I tell folks just a little bit about you? Sure, go ahead. Charlie Toledo is a Tao descendant, uh, a native uh, to New Mexico. She is the executive director of the Cisco International Council, a community-based organization incorporated in 1992 and located in Napa, California. She has experience as a public presenter and a community organizer in regional, statewide, national, and international forms. Since 1986, uh, worked in alternative health care fields, background in media Mediation, consultation for individuals, families, and organizations. She has been an organic gardener, how wonderful, since 1978. And I got to tell you, we're organic also. And there's nothing like eating a tomato from your own garden. She has a lifelong commitment to social justice and international work on human rights and environmental social 
justice issues. And just welcome, Charlie. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Thank you. Uh, just a correction on your pronunciation. I'm a descendant of the Towa people. Towa. Thank you. And that's referred to more uh, commonly as the Jemez Pueblo, just west of Santa Fe, and it's Suskal Intertribal Council. You said international. Thank so we're you. intertribal council. So we're not a tribe, but we're an organization. Intertribal means we're, you know, work with tribes of the region, but also tribal people that are living in Napa County and Sonoma counties right now. Well, talk, you know, talk a little bit about the Tawa people. Can you explain a little Tawa. bit? Tawa. Shoot, let, let me, let's get it right. Tawa. Oh, it's Towa. 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 Thank you so much. Talk a little bit about the Towa people. Who and are they? I can't they? talk that much about it because my grand—that's uh, my grandfather's tribe. He was removed from that tribe as a seven-year-old child and uh, given into a Spanish family to be raised as a servant or, more correctly, a slave in the household. And the same with my grandmothers. We don't know their tribes because then um, at the time of the Euro invasions in North America, they would take Native American babies and young children and uh, raise them in the conquer families as servants. So the Towa people, I've learned from my adult life, live at what is called Hamas River, which, of course, is the incorrect name. They call themselves the Walla Towa, the people of the Red Canyon, just west of Santa Fe. And most of what are referred to more commonly as the Pueblo tribes of New Mexico were agrarian people. They raised corn in Chile and... Um, lived in permanent villages made of adobe and kind of like a little apartment building stacked on top of each other because arable land was scarce and water was scarce, so it was more um, uh, equitable to live, you know, close together and let the arable land be farmed. And I, my grandfather then was moved into uh, south of Albuquerque in a place referred to as Peralta, about 25 miles south of Albuquerque on Highway 25, and that's where both my parents were born, and that was very rural, very agrarian, and they lived without money. I would say to young children, they grew, they didn't have much money, but they were wealthy. They traded. They were, it was, they were bartering. Money wasn't the exchange, but more like uh, food. So my grandfather was a chili farmer, and that was a farm that in my early childhood growing up in Albuquerque, an adobe house my father built, an adobe house that my grandfather and all my aunts and uncles lived in houses made of mud and straw that they built themselves, and uh, we did have running water. My grandfather's house in Peralta had water from pumped from a ditch and an outhouse, and we went there every weekend of my early childhood until I was about eight years old, and that's where we got our food. You know, my grandfather had a farm that um, had chickens and rabbits and goats and so, uh, you know, pigs and cows, so all of our meat, all of our eggs, all of our, a lot of our protein came from what we would now refer to as free-range, organically, locally sourced <laughs> food. So that was my early childhood. My grandfather predominantly roast chili. That was his trade product. Uh, and even through to my adulthood, he would still bring, you know, when my family did a voluntary migration to Southern California in 1958, uh, my grandfather would arrive twice a year with a suitcase full of chili to bring to his adult children and families that lived in Southern California. So we just would get a gunny sack full of red chili that was harvested from his farm. Wow, what a and beautiful memory. Based on. Yeah. So. What a, what a and the Toa people are still there. Um, the Toa is the language. There is Tiwa, Tewa, and Toa. Toa is specific to what is referred to as the Hamas Valley, uh, or the Walla Toa, and that was a 
restricted because of the canyon, but it's a creek, still a beautiful river that runs right through it, so it's a really active water source, which, of course, that would be a large, stable population around water in New Mexico. Amazing. What an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what a great memory, you know, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of my grandmother. My grandmother used to make her own wine. And I remember having going in the backyard and seeing all the vegetables and all the different things that they did back back in the day, so to speak. Well, talk a little bit about the Cusco International, uh, excuse me, Intertribal Council. You know, <laughs> you know. I, I'll tell you, I'm so excited. You know, I, my my granddaughter gave birth to my second great granddaughter uh, yesterday. Yes, congratulations. You it, mentioned that. You know, and I'll tell you something. I'm my. I'm. It's like my my mom is in two places. <laughs> I'm sure it is. You know? And such a beautiful baby. I mean, just oh. just amazing. And when I think when I think about what you said at the beginning about your grandfather that he was taken away and they took away tried to take away their language and I mean well, it, 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 it's just it's just really sad. Well talk about talk about your organization, its mission and how it serves the Native American population. And also how did you get involved? I mean what is your involvement and what is your what, what is your inspiration behind all this? Well, I got involved because I started it. Oh, <laughs> but, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, or reorganized it because it actually was initially formed in 1972, and then it had there was a 10-year hiatus. But the reason I was getting involved is complex, but because we were forcefully assimilated in my young adulthood when I was 21, actually when I moved to Napa in 1972, it was a voluntary migration on my part. Um, we started finding all kinds of archaeological remains, you know, grinding bowls and beads and hearing stories about skeletons being found, and then I said, well, where did the people go? And they said, oh, north. You know, nobody would talk about it. And I said, don't talk about it, because they'll come and take your land away. And Sonoma State will come over here. So I just kept asking the question, where did they go? Where did the Indians go from Napa County and Sonoma County until I found the tribes? But I actually found them when I went back to New Mexico. Uh, the Diné people in 1986, uh, the U.S. government was going to forcefully relocate them. So in a desperate attempt to not be wiped out, Again, uh, they called the people of the world to come and be in solidarity because then they felt like the U.S. Army wouldn't come and mass murder them or forcefully relocate them. And it actually was a successful strategy. But I went there as a, with some of my friends from San Francisco, and that's where I met a Pomo woman native to California. I was going back to the land of my grandfather's, and Big Mountain is in northern what's called Four Corners, northern Arizona, very remote, very rural, very off the grid Um so that, and then she ended up, this woman, Norman, I, uh, she ended up driving back with me because she had gone out there with people that were on their way to South Dakota. So she had just been, dropped herself off in the middle of the desert. So I was like, well, there'll be somebody going back. And so she hitched a ride with me and my two young children. My kids were babies at the time. And we became lifelong friends, and she actually brought me into the California Indian world. Um, and that's where I started working with the tribes and knowing tribal people, which at that time in the late 80s and stuff were still very hidden. And uh, so seeing the decimation and the, the destitution of the um, survivors of the genocides and stuff, we just started asking the question, what can we do to help as urban people? And after going, some of the different, this one medicine woman was actually gathering people that were awakened, as she said. She put us together in groups, and we started traveling to all the rancherias and reservations around California, just doing ceremony. And she was calling us all to wake up and to stand up, and at the time of, you know, the massacres was over, and we, it was time for us to come out into the public and the world. And um, 
so people like me that was already assimilated and you know interfacing with the dominant culture professionally and everywhere else I said, what can we do to help? And so what came up after, you know, a lot of years of discussion, probably in 86 to 92, however long that is, that's, that seemed like a long time of time now, it's only five years, but um, they had, we uh, were asked to create a, a place where Native Americans could safely gather for ceremony because it wasn't safe on the rancherias or reservations. And it was still, as late as 1978, it was three felony offenses to do ceremony, Native ceremony. And then even though President uh, Carter passed the Indian Religious Freedom Act, it still didn't hit the ground. You know, you when I first started Sufco Council in 1992, with the intention of creating a, a ceremonial gathering place for the tribes of Northern California, anybody uh, that wanted a safe place to gather, that's what our intention was. Uh, but I had to deal with the FBI, with police harassment, the police harassing my children, harassing me, and then um, I ended up realizing, oh, yeah, the first chair of Sufco, he said, you know, they, they killed us, they moved us around, they stole the land from us, they're not giving us anything back, and that's when I realized that we would have to go into the international community because the persecutor was U.S. military, U.S. government. We weren't going to really get help from the U.S. government. Um, so that's what helped, that's why I started the Sufco. We reactivated the Sufco at that time, the initial Incarnation 1972 is Susco Indian Council, and then we renamed it Susco Intertribal Council. We took the same name, and Susco is a Putwin word. That was the largest tribe over here in Napa County, uh, and they were desecrating and digging up the village site to put in a what's called the Southern Overpass, that pass that keeps you from coming into Napa if you're coming on Highway 29 off of Highway 80. There's a big overpass, and so when they were putting that in, they were digging up, you know, skulls. And at that time, California did not have any protocols for what to do with a funeral, you know, with the bodies, basically. And so people would just dig them up and desecrate them and sell them and trade them and do whatever. So Jim Big Bear King was living here in Napa. He's a Crow person who um, had relocated here voluntarily before the colonial, you know, the colonization or the, what we call now the Euro invasions. And so he just went and physically stood in front of the directors and said, you're going to have to shoot me if you want to keep digging up my people. So he called, and he was familiar with federal Indian law, what are called Kapler's Indian law, that uh, a Native person could do that. And so uh, other Native people knew he was making his stand, and they went and stood with him. And so then Governor Brown, in his first incarnation, his earlier time as governor, Governor Moonbeam, when he was much groovier, but he, he, they put a stop to the construction of the freeway, and they pulled all the tribes in California together that wanted to be part of it and developed what is now called the Native American Heritage Commission. It was a commission uh, designated to uh, oversee the proper disposal and management of uh, burial remains and artifacts. And um, so that's how Sussville got started. And then when we were reactivating it, taking back that same name, because those were the people, you know, the woman I met in Arizona, that was her family that helped start Sussville back in the day. So Lynn, when I Lynn, realized we were going to have to start an organization, we just we just took the name that it had had. And let me, let me ask you this question. You know, time is running out quickly. I oh, can't. Yeah, that's I, what I said to you. Can you ask only two questions? <laughs> I can't believe it. It's just a two-hour dialogue. 
I would like, you know, I really, this is our second interview, and I really want to just, I want to invite you back, and I will send you some information. I want to dedicate a show to you, because I, I, I had the same thing happen last time. You know, we run out of time, and there's so much to cover. And, you know, you're talking about your grandfather. You know, you're talking about some of the, the struggles that, that went on for you to even even develop this, this organization that you're working with now in Napa. And now here we have Indigenous Peoples, Heritage Month. I mean, how is that changing? Does that does that feel that it's different? How does this? How does this? Well, it's safe for us to gather. We don't get arrested on three felony counts if we're carrying feathers or having ceremony in public or drumming in public. That's a huge, huge change. And then instead of being harassed by the powers that be, we're actually being endorsed and protected by the police department. And uh, people are suddenly. It seems suddenly, but actually, it's been the work of. Really, since since the 1850s, when California was invaded, uh, the Native people have been trying to, you know, be seen and be heard, and and now we are. Now, as it's all changing, it seems very rapidly, but it's actually not that rapid. It's been a lot of pain and suffering, um, and so so I think that now Indigenous Peoples Month or Native American Month, people understand what that is, and we're getting asked to go talk at schools and libraries and. Whereas before, people would say, what? <laughs> or they'd think of uh, November as Native American because of Thanksgiving. And that's where we started doing um, our art auction and things like that to raise money. We've done that for 25 years. But now, instead of just thinking Thanksgiving, people are thinking, oh, come and tell us about your tribes. And people have everybody, the common person, understands that what, hap- what happened in California. It wasn't discovered. It wasn't a wilderness waiting to be Settled. It was, uh, you know, it was people lived here it's all over California in permanent villages. And that's starting to be common information. And now people are starting to understand that what happened here was criminal. It was a criminal offense. It was uh, genocide. Oh, my and God. Unfortunately, now what's changing things very rapidly is Governor Newsom. You know, he is the first legislator in this ever in the history of California to... Uh, apologize to the native people about the genocides that occurred here and he used the word genocide which he was the first person doing that saying this was a genocide there's and it's when i used to say that people would spit at me and tell me i was a liar and i was crazy and they wouldn't ask me back and i'd have all kinds of stuff so that's a big change in 20 years uh and then now what governor newsom's doing they're doing these listening sessions all the tribes and all the tribal people organizations that want to be participating are creating the basis for what will be statewide curriculum starting from kindergarten to college level uh, so it'll be integrated the story of what happened here in California and the tribes and the the reality the real story of what 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 occurred and what happened and and right now there's another state senator that is gathering all the names of places like Kelseyville and Vallejo and Yountville uh, like Squaw Valley, that name changed, but what the, and that's something the tribes, the California tribes, have been trying to change since it was named that. But that was successful about two weeks ago. Patrick Partrick Point got changed uh, last week to the name the tribe calls that Sacred Point. So the names, the Indian people, just like when I'm saying the Tulwa people, that's that tribe reclaiming their own name. They they're not called Hamas. Hamas was some Euro invader. It's not the Hamas Valley. It's the uh, Wallatoa. It's the place, the land of the people of the Red Canyon. So that is going to be a really big shift that I think is going to occur very rapidly in the next few years. But it has been 150 years that people 
were slaughtered and genocidal, and so in recovery from that, that seems like a long time, but it's short compared to, you know, because it wasn't just the people that were wiped out, it was the memory of the people. Well, I'm so glad that we can have the memory on this show, and I really, I really appreciate all this information. And as I can tell, once again, I mean, there's so there's so much richness in in this interview and the information that you have to share. So, are there any last words? And go ahead, give us your website and anything. Yeah, website is Susco Council. It's our website is very, very informative. It talks about the classes that we're teaching. We have five series workshops that are teaching just what I've just briefly touched on. But it also talks about a lot of, there's a lot of information on suscocouncil.org. And so it's S-U-S-C-O-L-C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot O-R-G is our website. Or if you like Susco Council on Facebook. I'm posting things two or three times a day about contemporary Native Americans and indigenous people and also Charlie, historical. we've just we've just run out of time and okay, I wanna I wanna fine. thank you from the bottom of my heart and remind my listeners is all this information will be on women's spaces www.womenspaces.com. Great. You've been listening to Women's Spaces. This is Elaine B. Holt. I've been your host. I want to do a special thank you to Janine Murray, the executive director of Sonoma County Local and Charlie Toledo, Executive Director of Susco International Intertribal Council. Thank you all for listening. The previous Women's Spaces show was recorded on Monday, November 8, 2021.